Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Houndsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. We like to think that fantasy is a limitless exploration of our imagination. But in reality, fantasy fiction is limited by our cultural experiences. As a result, what most of us are exposed to are a very narrow set of ideas about fantasy and magic. Those mostly from a Judeo-Christian Western tradition. When we are exposed to other magic styles, the key word is other. Whenever non-Western traditions are represented in mainstream fiction, they tend to be defined by this othering or an exoticizing of religions and cultural traditions. But what does this really mean? And how does this end up misrepresenting a major population within fantasy fiction? We are very lucky to have Malaysian author Zen Cho with us today to help us explore issues of exoticizing non-Western ideas of magic. Hi, Zen. Thank you for joining us. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, so just to introduce yourself to our listeners, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, the books you write, and uh, yeah, just... Yeah, sure. Um, so um, as you said, I am a Malaysian author, but I've been living in the UK for um, sort of 15 years now. Um, I, um, I write fantasy um, broadly in two categories. One is uh, what I call... Uh, kind of fluff for post-colonial book nerds um, and the other category I think can broadly can basically be described as Asian women meet magical creatures um, and uh, sometimes they overlap so um, I, I've written three books um, the first Spirit of Broad is a short story collection um, and I've written two novels which are historical fantasy novels set in Regency England um, and Fairyland and further abroad um, and uh, the first is called Sorcerer to the Crown, about England's first African sorcerer royal and all his uh, life problems. Second is called The True Queen. That's out um, in the UK on the 21st of March. And uh, it's about a young woman from an island in uh, the Malayan archipelago called Dandabite, uh, who um, has to go on a quest, essentially, to England to break a curse that she and her sister are under. Awesome. Yeah. And we were very lucky and I'm going to be very smug that we've already read the book. <laughs> we have. It was great. <laughs> Yay. So yes, we're being very smug. Um, but yeah, it's really exciting. It's coming out very soon and it will be with you. Mm. So let's just like to, before we get really stuck into um, kind of the the deep subject matter, uh, let's just talk a little bit about what originally drew you to writing fantasy and and looking at you know magic in particular, yeah, I think um, well, I I grew up reading fantasy, um, you know, like I guess every other fantasy um, writer, um, and um, and I think, I mean, what why I say jokingly, so I I grew up also reading lots of kind of I guess what you'd call maybe period fiction, like stuff by Jane Austen and and you know Charles Dickens and uh, the Brontes and so on. Um, I mean, because Malaysia is a former British colony, um, you know, basically the, the literature available to me was kind of um, Western literature and lots of lots of British authors, particularly. So I kind of say half jokingly, half seriously that because I was reading all this, um, like, uh, you know, like fiction set in, in a very kind of alien society, you know, like, say, Regency England, um, you know, I, I was a kid in Malaysia in the 1980s, so it's it was kind of you know it was kind of equivalent to reading fantasy fiction f- for me. Kind of you know you're you're plunged into this new world with new norms and kind of well it's more like science fiction I guess new technology like horse drawn carriages and handkerchiefs, um, but that you know that isn't that 
isn't used in your everyday life um, and different language as well you know English but in a you know very different form of English so so I think um, I think it was quite natural you know having had that and I read just fantasy as well you know Dino and Jones you know um, C.S. Lewis um, a lot of kids kids books being you know fantasy um, but also Tolkien um, and and that and Terry Pratchett and so I think it was just quite natural for me when I started writing to write fantasy um fiction I guess what I do a bit differently is incorporate um you know the the kind of other elements of my upbringing so um you know kind of uh Malaysian folklore beliefs and also um ideas from say Hong Kong Hong Kong fantasy movies I watched um and that kind of thing because um of course western culture wasn't the only influence on me in Malaysia I mean, in The True Queen and in some of your other books as well, you've got a very different sort of magic system to what we have in normal Western fantasy novels. And um, I can't really talk about it too much without giving away some of the plot surprises. But what I can ask is, why did you want to represent magic systems that differed from some of the standard tropes we see? Were there any Western magic tropes that you wanted to avoid in particular? No, I don't think I, I, don't think I was that systematic about it because I think, um, you know, as I was saying... Western fiction, Western fantasy fiction was as big an influence, probably the primary influence on me, actually, um, as, as a writer, except that kind of in everyday life, you know, I was also receiving kind of ideas about, um, you know, kind of local folklore, local ghosts, um, local magics, I guess. But I wouldn't say that necessarily outweighed, like, all my reading of fantasy fiction was of Western fantasy fiction. I wouldn't say that one kind of necessarily outweighed the other. Um, you know, they were both kind of big influences um and so when i when i write I, i'm not deliberately avoiding western magic tropes necessarily because and in fact i think sorcerer to the crown and true, the true queen do draw a lot on on kind of you know classic ideas of of what magic is like in in western fantasy um i i, I guess i kind of view that as part of my inheritance as it were you know kind of part of the corpus that I get to draw on as a as someone who who's from a Brit, former British colony from a Commonwealth country um, and so because I grew up with that kind of mix of cultures um, incorporating ideas from other traditions is definitely something that really interests me and that's something I try to do in my books so yeah so that that's kind of and you know I just think it's interesting it's it's kind of natural in a way um, it feels truer to the world that I live in so, so that's kind of why I do it. Yeah, I was thinking maybe like a better question, and that's this is kind of to the whole group, is what do we actually mean when we talk about Western magic? Because, I mean, to me, um, the first thing that springs to mind is stuff like mages and wizards and Merlin, mm -hmm. the kind of magic that, you know, has old men with beards throwing fireballs around and, and kind of spelling out incantations. That That's, that's the magic that I feel I read most about when I was growing up well I know that in Zen's book uh, The True Queen they deal quite a lot with actual sort of spoken words and using spirits so it's not necessarily sort of the magic within you that you know Lisa was saying with mages and you know, you've got the staff of power and it draws on whatever source whatever I quite like that in obviously Zen's the magic is sort of external and it is summoned by words and in particular very polite words yeah, but then word word magic. I mean, Harry Potter is all sorts. You know, all the spells are are done by words, aren't, um, aren't they? And um, this is this is one of these annoying things. And and 
Lucy in particular will know what I'm talking about. You know when you do so many edits to a book and you can't remember if a line has stayed in or not. Um, but one of my favorite lines from one of the drafts, I have I actually don't know if it's ended up in the, the actual book, is um, at one point a character is kind of a Malay, illiterate Malay peasant who's also a witch. You know, she says, well, you know, the English think nothing is real unless it's written down. And, you know, that's meant to kind of highlight this kind of distinction between a very kind of verbal, written tradition of scholarly tradition of magic, which actually is featured quite heavily in Sorcerer Through the Crown. So Zacharias, for example, is kind of an expert in that kind of magic Um, and kind of contrasting that with maybe a bit more of a grassroots tradition, (laughs) you know, witches and stuff. But even that idea, you know, is really common in Western fantasy fiction. So like Harry Pratchett, for example, you know, he had his... He had this whole thing where in this world where you had these wizards who were in kind of academic magic and then you had the witches who were kind of, I don't know, community village magic. Um, and, and a big theme was that, you know, one wasn't necessarily stronger than the other. But I tend to find in um, Terry Pratchett, which I adore and can generally do no wrong in my head, mm-hmm. um, you do kind of have this idea that the charms and the words are there to kind of fool the layman. And that they're just, it's sort of the Granny Weatherwax idea. Yeah, give yeah. them a book and write some words on it. Whereas, yeah. in, you know, and, and again, in Harry Potter, it's almost, it's not necessarily connected to the magic. The magic seems to come from somewhere other that we never, yeah. I mean, is the magic within the wizards? I can't really remember. And you again, like I'm just thinking of all these fantasy stories we have, um, like Robert Jordan, for example, um, and his Wheel of Time. You get this idea of it's all sort of drawn through you and from specialised sources. Mm. Um, you kind of miss all the little the little spirits. And it just even thinking about, you know, Western stories, that's one of the things I really miss out of fairy tales. In fairy tales today, you get all the big characters, you get Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty mm. and all these kind of jazz, and you never get all the little imps and all the little sprites and things. They always get completely missed off or they're in they're in there as kind of a personality, like, you know, one that's metamorphosized into a key character. You never just get this general idea of just a thronging magical living world that's going on next to or within ours. I wonder whether it's kind of an issue of um, kind of modern Western fantasy versus, how do I say it's like traditional fairy folktale beliefs, you know, because if you, if you kind of go back far enough, obviously people did believe in magic, um, you know, in, in the West as well as outside of it. So in Sorcerer's the Crown, you know, I had, I had this kind of concept of like familiars, right, which is really common concept right really you know a common trope um and if you had a familiar then you were a sorcerer and that that was kind of an extra special magician with access to greater powers but i think it was a very it's a very functional relationship so it's 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 something that's particularly common in british magic um i think i mean i do make that clear in sorcerer but that's clear clear in the true queen um and it's a very it's almost like having a pet or or you know working animal that works for you whereas i think in the true queen when it comes to spirits you, you know they they're treated with a bit more respect it's kind of you know there's this idea that they're in a bit more that they're independent beings with their own interests and so on and if you're going to work with one you know you're going to you kind of have to respect what they want as well as what what you want um and i and i say this because i i just wonder whether you know we've gone from kind of, you know, back in the day when you were actually believing in magic, when you're sort of seeing this, you know, you, you're living in a world you only kind of half understand and you're seeing these kind of amazing things like, I don't know, typhoons hitting you and stuff. You know, you'd think, oh, right, okay, it's the typhoon god or whatever has come, has come and is mad at this or, you know, it's the, the spirit of the sea has risen up against us. And so, you, you you know, you were kind of contending with these huge forces 
um, that you had to respect um, and that, you know, had their own, you know, had their own designs, had their, you know, you didn't necessarily understand them. Um, whereas, I, you know, kind of fast forward to now, modern fantasies, mostly written by people who don't believe in magic, and not exclusively, but mostly. Um, and so, you know, it becomes a bit more like, oh, I'm a wizard and I, I can shoot fireballs because, you know, I've managed to, I don't know, exert control over this magic orb thing. Um, and it, it's a bit more functional. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that it's become really popular to have a very well-defined system of magic. So uh, I don't know if anybody else has watched them, but there's a series of like lectures that Brandon Sanderson gives to his uh actual students at the university where he teaches and i knew you were going to say brandon Sanderson. yeah but the thing is he he has a very specific like uh rule around creating a magic system and how you know you have to have a source and it has to be finite so that people can run out of it and it has to be consistent and so on and so forth whereas i feel like zen you were saying like the kind of more traditional fantasy kind of stuff you know that maybe we read more as as children was played a bit more fast and loose with kind of the idea of rules and where the magic came from and that was kind of left more up to the imagination it wasn't so well defined but i think even you know so uh jade city by fonda lee yeah you know that has very specific rules around where the magic come from comes from and how you draw that power mm -hmm. and i i do see that constantly now where you have very strict rules about the, the magic and how it works yeah just just an interesting observation <laughs> it's interesting yes yeah, it's, it's kind of almost like um like an irrational approach to magic you know treating it as though it's any kind of other source of power and so you know like like as though it's electricity or something and so you could just work out rules for you know working with it versus the kind of i guess the more numinous tradition I was going to say, didn't um, Nomi Novik explore that a little bit in Uprooted, you know, where the, the dragon's magic is it's very prescriptive. It's very, it comes from, you know, books of spells. It takes extreme concentration and it's very intellectual. Contrasted with Nishka's magic, which is much more to do with the earth and to do with feeling and intuition and how... You know, it's interesting how they had this interplay, these these two forms of magic kind of playing off against each other and how I remember the dragon feeling like, you know, how can she perform this magic? Because she's not doing it by the book. She's not following <laughs> yeah. the rules. Yeah. How dare it work for her? That kind of stuff, which is really interesting that she had these two different types of magic in the same book. But I think that, Zen, your work kind of does that as well because you spend a lot of time dissecting, like, dissecting cultural clashes when you're looking at kind of the the magical side as well as the mundane when you have Muna coming to England and you know that very kind of immediate I'm living in a different country which you know you can appreciate I can appreciate there's a lot of cultural clashes even you know from Australia to England did you in particular want to show the difference between that magic or even the cultures I think as you say because because of um my kind of life experiences. I think writing fish out of water type scenarios is, is really um, comes quite naturally to me. Um, and I think, and I suppose, you know, kind of stepping out and kind of looking at, at it from a kind of doyalist technical perspective, if you're thinking of the, the majority of the audience for these books, um, it kind of makes sense to do it in a way where you've got, say, Western, you know, kind of 
English culture, and then you've got the say you know Malay um, the Malay worldview, and you have that um, you know have the, you have the kind of more familiar English framework as a you know as a kind of stepping stone almost. Um, what what I, what I did in the Chukin and I was quite interested in doing um, was to actually almost reverse that um, reverse that in a way because I, I guess the traditional well the traditional in the kind of Western fiction um, approach would be um, you know to have a kind of Westerner look at the non-Western tradition and what you have in in the True Queen instead is almost kind of, is a kind of you know the voyage in of the kind of imperial subject as it were you know she she goes from somewhere that is Jandabaik uh, is an independent polity but it's you know under the threat of, of being um, kind of being sucked up into the kind of the kind of English um, the British imperial machine. Um, and she goes from there and she she travels into the metropolis into to England and then she kind of sees that you know as foreign to her um and I, I thought you know I, I just thought that was kind of interesting kind of turning that lens around um and looking you know hopefully kind of giving a slightly fresh kind of perspective on tropes that are familiar to fantasy readers, the magician and so on. Your short story collection spirits abroad um it's described as having a distinctly Malaysian sensibility um, in like the blurb. So I was wondering like what to you makes a story, a narrative have a Malaysian sensibility or a Malaysian cultural footing? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I wrote that. So. <laughs> but um, but I, think it's a, it, I think it's kind of a challenging one. Like, part of the reason why I said that actually is because um, if you read Search Abroad, um, you know, it's divided into three sections. It's, it's here, there, and elsewhere. And here are stories um, set in Malaysia. There are stories set outside Malaysia, but in our world. And then elsewhere um, is stories kind of set in, in outside of our world. So, you know, there's a short story um, called The Fourth Generations of Changa about um, people in space um, on the moon. Um, and, um, and then there's a short story set in a kind of secondary world, which is kind of feels Malaysian but you know isn't isn't um and so you know I deliberately kind of made kind of made it a bit vaguer sort of you know so it kind of feels Malaysian um but I think I guess what I, I mean by that is that um you know you can have a world that um isn't necessarily an exact analogy of a real world country or culture but you know the language that you use the the trees that grow in your your in your fictional country, the kind of weather, the way the air feels, the way the, the light looks, you know, all of that's going to come from somewhere. And I think a lot of fantasy, without necessarily saying so, you know, this kind of medievaloid kind of European style fantasy, um, you know, just draws on that as the default. You know, you don't see as much, say, tropical fantasy, um, you know, fantasy certain tropical countries. Um, you know, and and I think even even something small as as like I said, you know, what the air feels like uh, is something that really is really different, obviously, in different climates, uh, different countries. So when I, I think when I say something feels Malaysian, that's that's kind of what I mean when you when you convey that different feeling, and you can do it in in lots of different ways by by you know, say, using Malaysian English or you know whatever Malaysian dialect. You could do it by saying, right, they eat Malaysian food; they don't just eat you know, cheese and hard, hard cheese and bread <laughs> and, and uh, drink ale at taverns, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, I think it's just kind of changing those, those, well, I was going to say small things, but I guess they aren't really small things. They're kind of 
the matter of world building. Yeah, but as you say, they're kind of things that we take for granted in a lot of fantasy because they, you know, we just if you've got kind of a an ensemble fantasy with you know it's got a quest, you know, you as you say, they go and they eat bread and cheese on the road and then they end up at the local tavern drinking ale and you know and it's so ingrained oh don't you make me hungry <laughs> i was thinking of that i, I could do so good for pub. Yeah, yeah i could do I with some ale <laughs> i want to kind of go back on something you said a little while ago sorry to jump around um but you you were saying how you've got the kind of very methodical functional kind of magic um, as opposed to like sort of the the more um, naturally driven um, or, or where it comes from sort of the more folklore elements. And I mean, part of this is when you actually look back at it and, and you can see Christianity coming in and kind of overtaking a lot of the areas and then kind of the belief in magic kind of became you know, not rational it was looked down upon and so on and so forth. And I get the feeling when non-Western or non-Judeo-Christian traditions of magic are used, there's still a sort of looking down on them because it, it you know, it, despite it being 2019, there's still that kind of um, uncivilized sort of brush that it gets it's tarred with. Um, I mean, do you do you feel that? Do you th- see still examples of other cultural traditions in in magic and fantasy represented in this way? I think it's a really interesting question um, because I think you, I think there's kind of different levels of this. So I, I think you could say, um, you know, on one level, there's there's kind of work that books and so on that um, just don't make any effort. You know, just like really appropriative. You know, they just sort of pick up um, you know ideas from other cultures and just kind of use them. Um, as set dressing, essentially. Um, and that's just complete, you know, not particularly respectful, not particularly interest, interesting work. Um, and, you know, that sort of thing you can almost just kind of, well, I was going to say you can just dismiss outright. In a way, you can't because that's often the only portrayal people will, you know, Westerners will see of a particular tradition. So so then that, and that, that kind of, um, and it squeezes out, you know, it squeezes out more kind of um, interesting portrayals uh, so that that does become frustrating if you're from kind of a tradition that's not as well represented um, in Western culture, um, which which currently is is to a certain extent global culture. So that's kind of one level. I think um, I, I'm not as interested in talking about that because you know it's 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 kind of it is what it is. If you kind of say, oh, this is really you know kind of shitty portrayal that that's just completely appropriative, then then that's kind of as far as you can go with that. The next level, which is kind of interesting, is is one that kind of relates to what you're saying about, you know, at a certain point in, uh, say, Western history, uh, it became, it was no longer the thing to believe in magic. Like, you know, it, it, you know, the Enlightenment happened, um, and now we're all super enlightened, and we believe in science now, um, except for those of us who, you know, um, who who don't believe in science, but but aren't going to say we believe in magic. So um, I guess an example would be say anti-vaxxers or maybe people who go to homeopaths. They they probably wouldn't say that they believe in magic, um, but it's it's not like their their decisions are being driven by kind of rational kind of scientific evidence. Um, 
so you know, there's kind of a point at which it it, it became you know in Western culture, it was kind of like yeah, we don't believe in ghosts anymore. We don't believe in you know we don't believe in fairies, all that kind of thing. Um, and um, and I think I think you kind of see that in and that mindset. You see that mindset in works by people who grew up in the West or who were educated in the West. Um, you know, even if they're from you know, that from kind of underrepresented groups, you know, an example, say, that's closest to me is Asian Americans. Um, and they, and I don't think they even really realized that that's different from how many people from Asia, for example, may, might write about those traditions. Um, one thing I often ask when I do bookshop events or, or you know, just li uh, literary events in Malaysia, um, and, I, and I'm thinking of this because I did one quite recently, uh, you know, last week, a couple of weekends ago, um, is I often ask the audience, um, you know, how many of you believe in spirits? How many of you believe in ghosts? Um, and there's often, you know, there's often a decent number of hands. Um, and and these are crowds that are, you know, I would say, you know, they're Western educated, they're middle class and up, you know, and so on. They're, these are the crowd, because that's the crowd that comes to literary events in, in, in English in Malaysia. Um, but, you you know, it's it's not, it's not, stigmatized and it's, it's extremely common for people to believe in spirit and in magic and in you know what you call superstition um and i think if you i think if you have that you know if you have this kind of a understanding that it's a legitimate way to be viewing seeing the world um then the kind of fancy when you write you know so-called fantasy actually it feels different it you know there's a different approach to magic um and it's it's one that's less kind of completely premised on this idea that the world is completely knowable and controllable by humans. Yeah, I mean I I think I'm I'm with Charlotte with I really liked the the use of sprites and spirits and kind of them just being around us all the time but just aren't really paid any attention. I just yeah, I enjoyed that because it did feel more like a, a kind of folklorey magic that I don't see a lot in in modern fiction. Yeah, I think it. I think it comes very naturally to me. I think you know, um, the the actually different communities in Malaysia, but I think all of them have a. Um, there's a certain kind of underlying animism in in the kind of beliefs, um, local beliefs, and so, you know, the, it was it was very natural. You know, growing up, for example, if I was you know, as kids do, kind of kicking the ground and stuff. My mum would tell me not to kick a log because, you know, I, I might offend the spirit inside it, that kind of thing. Um, so to me, it's, it's just a fairly natural way of seeing the world. I mean, I, I should I should say, because this is what I say when I ask the question at my, my you know, my events, um, it is, is that what I say is that I don't believe in spirits, but um, I'm a bit worried that they don't um, care whether I believe in them or not. <laughs> <laughs> that's very pratchett of you isn't it <laughs> you might not believe in the spirits but they believe in you <laughs> yeah you put it really nicely actually in um the first story in spirits abroad uh with vivian and she is going to england and like the western culture and you say um what is it nobody believed in magic except people in whom nobody believed yeah. And I was like, that's really neat, you know, <laughs> that is exactly kind of encapsulates this like turning away from, yeah, from maybe from from our roots in a way. I feel like we all kind of came from this. I think I think magic is such a it's such a universal concept. And I think that's why it's originated in pretty much like every culture um, across the world. And yet, you know, they're definitely, as, as Megan was saying earlier, there definitely came a change, like kind of probably in the Enlightenment period, where maybe before that, where um, 
there was a kind of line drawn in the sand and where magic has you know since then gradually been kind of relegated to uh, to barbarism and witchcraft and then you know that interplays quite you know, in quite a complex way with the, the rise of religion and, and the kind of way that religion and magic, they've never been, you know, easy bedfellows. And I think, um, I mean, kind of going back to what I was saying about um, the difference in, in you know, in, in what fantasy fiction is like that when it's produced by people complete, in a completely rational culture versus people from a culture where perhaps there's more space allowed for the irrational. Um, I mean, an example, actually, um, I, I don't know if you guys have read um, Arif Kwong's uh, The Poppy War. Justly very popular and has done very well. Um, and um, and it's I, I really enjoyed the book. Um, you know, I'm very, looking, very much looking forward to the next. But I think one thing that really struck me, actually, because um, it's, uh, you know, without spoilers, it features um, sh- shamans. It, it features kind of shamanic ma- magic. But what struck me about the portrayal of it um, is, is, is how... How do I put this? Sort of how American, you know, how American it was, how how Western it was, because it's it's just magic. It's it's like I don't know. It's like power that enables you to shoot fireballs, you know, that that kind of thing. Whereas it's almost like just I don't know, having a Pokemon or something. <laughs> Whereas I think um, you know, sh- shamanic magic, you know, is something that has is a real tradition in many cultures, including, um, say, the Southern Chinese culture, which is most familiar to me. Um, and I would say in in real life, as it were, uh, writing about that sort of thing, um, there's, there's kind of more, uh, you know, kind of horror and terror and awe. There's, there's, it's more reverence. It's, it's more mysterious. It's more, it's scarier. It's less rational. It's less, uh, it's less easy to explain, um, I think, because, you know, because, I guess in a way, quote-unquote, true magic is like that. And the reason why I mentioned that is because I thought it was interesting, you know, the kind of question about, you know, the relationship between magic and religion, you know, that mm-hmm. they do seem to kind of belong together in a way. You know, what what do you call what Jesus Christ does if it's not kind of magical, um, rising from the dead and so on? Um, but, you know, when it comes to religion, that kind of power, the divine, you know, the divine is actually, is kind of a different level from the kind of magic you see, I guess, in, in modern fantasy by rational people. I haven't read um, your other books, Zem, but I did read The True Queen, and I was quite interested by the fact that um, Muna goes to bed and says her prayers to God. And I just thought that, you only mentioned it a couple of times, and I just thought that was quite interesting because you don't normally kind of get this this kind of background religion in people who practice magic. Usually they're all up there with, they're on one-to-one terms with the gods or they're psyching themselves up to bring down a god or something. You never just kind of get religion as just part of the normal background to um, to uh, to magic and, and witches and wizards and things. Yeah, I did that for a few reasons. So um, one reason was that was reading somewhere, you know, a point about Regency kind of set historicals and romances and fantasies, which is that, and it said, you know, what what a lot of modern writers get wrong about this period is how central religion was to people's lives and how they saw the world. Um, And, you know, that's not the case for many, many modern writers setting their books at that time. Um, And so I think people just forget. And and I thought it was a very good point, because actually, if you read you know, if you read, say, Jane Austen's letters or, or you know, the letters from that period, you, you know, God is a, and, and religion is, is a kind of presence in their life in a way that perhaps it isn't for many people now. Um, 
And um, so that was one thing I kind of thought, oh, I better, I better fix that. <laughs> okay, yeah, the next book. Um, and um, another aspect is that when you look, so I, I drew a lot on this book called Malay Magic by uh, Walter William Skeat. I don't know how to pronounce his name. S K S K E A T. Um, skate, scat, skate. Anyway, um, and he was he was a British anthropologist uh, working in the civil service um, in Malay uh, in the late 1800s. So so essentially a colonial ad- administrator. But he wrote this book, which is kind of a treatise on Malay fol- folklore beliefs, and it's really fascinating. And it's got this amazing appendix just full of all these spells that he wrote down that he kind of got from people in Malay. Um, and, um, and what's, what's interesting is kind of the blend of religious belief and magic. So, you know, so for example, a spell to uh, exorcise somebody of an evil spirit will have references to the God and uh, Allah and uh, the Quran and so on. Um, because, you know, uh, because people, Malays are majority uh, were Muslim, you know, are Muslim. So that's something I wanted to kind of show that, you know, religion and magic can coexist. Um, and uh, and Muna is is a Muslim. So um, I, I use the word God, um, and I did this in the first book as well, actually, deliberately, because um, I think kind of going back to what I was saying about trying to have a kind of fresh framework, I guess, um, treating the the you know, British culture as foreign um, and, and treating, say, Malay cultures as, as I don't know, normal, default. Um, I felt that if you re- referred to Allah in a book in English, um, you know, readers would have a certain feeling about that. And if you referred to God um, in a book in English, readers would have a, a a certain feeling about that and the fact is they they mean the same thing Allah means God so um so so I used God deliberately kind of you know in in a kind of like right let's not exoticize this um when they say Allah you know they mean God and and that's just uh that's that's the feeling they have so I'll 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 go for that yeah I think these names are quite loaded aren't they they've become you know um God is such a it's such a general term that everybody is comfortable with, you know, it's kind of like a cosy word. And, and you know, it, it's something we can all kind of a concept we can all grasp. But once you start using Allah and Yahweh um, and these these actual names of gods, I feel like it becomes um, people have opinions and opinions. I feel like at that point, you're per- you can't keep your own personal opinions from intruding into the text as a reader. Mm. Yeah, they're incredibly fraught, aren't they? I mean, this is a bit off topic, but um, an example of that is, um, you know, there was a there was a there was a huge kind of um, like deal in Malaysia um, quite quite a few years back now, um, because when the British missionaries came to uh, East Malaysia, um, they they translated the Bible into Malay, which was used by you know many of the indigenous tribes um, who they were converting to Christianity, basically. Um, and they use the word Allah for God in, in these Bibles because Allah means God. Um, and um, and so, you know, fast forward now to, to kind of 21st century Malaysia and Allah is treated as kind of the property of, of Muslims, you know, it's treated as a Muslim word for God, uh, which is, you know, not necessarily the case. You know, it, 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 there's no reason why it should be. Um, but, you know, the, there was kind of a court case and everything, um, you know, to restrain, seeking to restrain um, the Catholic church i think from from using the word allah in in malay language bibles you know they, they were saying oh you, you have to use the word buhan which is a more you know kind of more neutral word that is translated as god um 
and and so it, it's an interesting one. There's kind of words that you, you know where words that you kind of bring your own baggage to either way. Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested with the, how you were saying. You know, you, you did have magic and religion working together, and because again, I feel like it, it's kind of at that the time when you know it sort of was seen as the rational versus the irrational. You know, before when we had. Uh, more like ancient religions where you had, you know, the ancient Greeks, the gods or, um, you know, the, the Norse mythology, it, gods, religion, magic, it was all kind of one and the same. And then it, it, mm. it sort of changes and it's sort of either religion or magic, even though, as you say, you know, Jesus rising from the grave. I mean, what else is that? Walking on water. What is that other than magic? Um, but it it does become kind of an either or presentation of it. And I mean, even I remember. So when I was living in Texas um, in the late nineties, and it was when Harry Potter came out, and, and it was a big deal. And I mm. just remember going to school and. Harry Potter was banned from school because it was considered paganistic. Um, you know, uh, it's just yeah, it was, it was bizarre. So my mum used to um, volunteer at the school library. So I was in primary school. You know, I was like, I was like nine when Harry Potter came out, um, and <laughs> mum used to smuggle in copies of Harry Potter and give it to the kids because she thought it was important that they got to read and be excited <laughs> by magic and things. Um, <laughs> She is a hero. <laughs> she is. Um, but, yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, that I did, like Charlotte, pick up on that kind of having the magic and the religious beliefs at the same time. And it really kind of strikes me as odd, um, you know, as someone in 2019 where, you know... It, you get a lot of those conversations now about, you know, how are scientists religious? And I feel like it's kind of a similar thing when it comes to fantasy and magic and religion. Um, it's just a, it's a very interesting interplay of ideas. Well, going back to what Megan said just a moment ago about, uh, oh, sorry, was it Zen talking about um, Jesus walking on water? And what is that if that's not magic? I think if you compare that to the Norse mythology, which we mentioned previously as well, you've got this idea that um, in the Norse mythology, you obviously have... Um, magic is given by the gods to humans. But of course, once you get to something like Judeo-Christianism, then it's very much a case of all the magic is reserved for the god. And if you try and do magic, then you are seen as, you know, trying to take on a very godlike aspect. Um, and they're not very keen on that. Whereas, of course, with previous ones, you had a god of magic or you had a god associated with that kind of thing. And they bestowed all the gifts. Whereas I think moving on, it was all reserved for the one god. And, and that's kind of where it went from. And, and then you also witch. have issues. Of, you <laughs> so you, also, you try to do it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And we were talking earlier about um, uh, magic that's within books and magic that's intuitive. And, of course, you have intuitive magic being very much female magic and then wanting to stamp on females and all this kind of stuff. And we could go into a huge long history of all that. So, you know, let's stop stop, stop talking about the, the poor representation or how things get overlooked or misrepresented. And let's talk about some, you know, what what should we be reading other than Zen's books, obviously? Um, you know, what, what should we re be reading to um, give people um, a sense of, of what else is out there? 
But I, I really enjoy, I really enjoyed um, Redemption in Indigo by Karen Lord, which is kind of, um, uh, I was describing it the other day to people as um, like a Senegalese folktale as told by Terry Pratchett. So, um, and, and Karen is a Barbadian writer, so that there's, you know, she's she kind of brings that kind of Caribbean um, sensibility um, and um, you know, kind of cultural background to to um, the, sto- the story. Um, so yeah, I, I really like that, and that's you know that's kind of um, one of my favorite kind of representations of non-Western magic traditions. Um, I mean, I, I sort of talked about um, R.F. Kuang's Poppy War as being by a, by a kind of Westerner, you know, or, or at least um, adopting a kind of Western approach to magic. But at the same time, I mean, it does it draws on Chinese um, history and, and traditions and, and ideas. Um, and I, I really enjoyed the book, um, you know, and I, I recommend it to people. Um, and I think with with Fonda Lee, um, I'm not like her magic is kind of also, you know, it's also kind of Chinese uh, in a way. It's, um, you know, it, it's maybe less than magic. The whole the whole aesthetic of the book um, is, you know, of a kind of really slick kind of 90s Hong Kong gangster film. Um, and you know, I've I've not seen that done in a novel before, in an English language fantasy novel before. So that, so again, I I um, really enjoyed that, um, and I and I recommend to be, it to people really highly. Well, it's really unfair of Megan to put this question on me when I'm so far away from my bookshelves, where I usually just go through the pen and paper and figure it out. Yeah. The one that really stands out in my head, and I'm sorry, it's a horror one, but um, I thought it was a really good use of folklore and mythology, was the girl from the well by Rin Chupeko, I think that's how you say it. Apologies, Rin, if it's not. Um, but that's a, a wonderful um, take on an original fairy tale. Fairy tale, horror story, ghost story, pretty grim, whatever it is. And I really like the way that um, the author blends in counting. I know this sounds strange, but I know that obviously there are some mythologies where vampires for example can be outwitted if you spill rice on the floor because they have to count it and things like that and it's just that sort of unusual take and counting is so much part of Akiku's who's the sort of main character I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who hasn't read it sort of main character it's really her little thing that she does and it's so bizarre and all the way through you're just going what on earth is this all about and then you get sort of part way through and you go oh that's why it's so significant and it turns the whole thing on its head and it is it's very very different take on ghosts and magic and spirits and possession and everything from what i've seen in the western society and it is it's just amazing i love that book it's really really good has anyone read the black tides of heaven because this is like really high up on my list um yeah i've read it yeah what's it was it like well um it's really it's in, it's really interesting i think um it's very polished and um and it's it's how do i say this like in a, in some ways it doesn't feel that singaporean to me but in some ways it does because of the it's just like a mix of different influences um so the author jy young um has talked about i think <laughs> how they they wrote um not the black not black tides as much more more red threads which you know is a companion novella um as a kind like inspired by Jurassic Park, you can definitely see that. Um, but it's kind of translated into, you know, via, into like, you know, she, they kind of draw on their other cultural influences as well. So so it's like, it has quite an anime feel as well, um, Black Tides of Heaven. 
like de- definitely like definitely really interesting kind of um drawing and kind of kind of a mix of of traditions including western traditions um, yeah, this has just made me want to read it more. I mean, you should, I'm, you definitely should. It's, it's short. I'm quite it's an anime fan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and I think, yeah, I, well, it's something I think, I feel like a lot of anime and manga does quite well. Um, you know, this kind of blend of Western and Asian cultures. Uh, like, um, uh, The Ancient Matrix's Bride. Do you know that one? No, I don't know. Um, it's, it's a, they've done an, a kind of anime of it now but I've read the first like seven mangas and that's really interesting because it has um the way that um they kind of work magic is again through little poultices and charms and enlisting the help of um fairies who will basically fuel the magic so they you you kind of get in the same way we've been talking about familiar uh, familiars like you you entice a familiar you kind of strike a, a bargain and then that familiar lends you the power to do spells you know, and it's it's kind of almost like um, it's more of a deal than 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 like innate magic. Um, but that's that's really interesting. I feel like you know, um, manga and anime are kind of you know, there's so many great examples out there of kind of just magic users and that di- completely yeah. different ways using like Bleach. I was so into Bleach when that when that was like hugely popular. Oh, that Bleach really like massively jumped the shark though. <laughs> it just went hard for a Yeah, it did. Oh, I only. Really- no, I only liked the main arc. You know, when yeah. they started doing all those spin-off arcs, they were really crap. But like the main the, idea, the beginning was so clever. promising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but actually, speaking of manga and anime, it's um, you know mentioning Alchemist, Full Metal Alchemist. Yep. You know, uh, is, is an amazing example, right? Of, of that kind of take on kind of European-ish, I guess, ideas and and, and magic, but then taking it in in directions that you just could, would not expect. Um, if you if your I guess if your expectations your story expectations are trained by uh, Western fiction, definitely I think that one also um, alongside something like uh, Evangelion, like it they kind of blend what we would normally sort of think of as magic and sci-fi and sort of blend them together. Like in mm-hmm. in Full Metal Alchemist, where you have like the alchemy is both science and magic. And it's a really interesting combination of the two, like the way that they kind of have, you know, the scientists experimenting with it, but at the same time, it it definitely feels more magic. But yeah, it, it's it's a very different kind of approach to something that is both rational and irrational at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So, do you want to do like a little roundup of, um, like a little like pitch of why our listeners should be picking up the True Queen? Um, if you like uh, dapper dragons, witches, hijinks, um, some seriousness, <laughs> magicians, you know, pretend- pretending to be what you're not, trying to get away with it, um, spirits who aren't particularly polite, you know, you might like the true queen. Well, if dapper dragons doesn't sell it, then nothing uh, will. Yeah. The dapper dragons yeah. are awesome. They, they, they really do sell it, to, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so, so much for coming and talking to us tonight. Um, it's been really, really great. And uh, we're, you know, excited for everyone to be able to read The True Queen. Well, thank you so much for having me. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Lucy Houtsom and Charlotte Bond. If you like what you hear, please show us a little love. Subscribe, leave a review and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. 
We believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon.